Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Okay, I, I want to get to more questions um, right. because there's a lot on the table here. So so how does that tie into this? Having said that, how, how does it affect these communities? What are we doing here? Are you curious about the world? Do you find yourself sparking conversations with friends, neighbors, family? WORT is now accepting applications for the next Monday host of A Public Affair. The ideal candidate is curious and collaborative with a diverse set of interests and knowledge. They're comfortable interviewing a wide variety of guests and fielding calls from the public. Does this sound like you? Then apply. Find a position description, more information, and an application online at wortfm.org slash talkhost. The application deadline is Monday, August 29th at midnight. People who are underrepresented in traditional media are especially encouraged to apply. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Mexico is currently in the throes of a series of intertwined crises, social and economic and political, now compounded by a relentless drought the direct result of climate change. And as is the case across the most, most of the globe, the worsening effects of that overarching crisis fall most heavily on the impoverished, the dispossessed, and disenfranchised. Joining us today directly from Mexico for a conversation on the multiple crises in that country and elsewhere is journalist Maria Habib the New York Times Bureau Chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. Ms. Abi Abib was previously based in New Delhi and covered South Asia from 2018 to 2020. Before joining the Times, she was a roving Middle East correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, covering the war on terror and the fallout from the Arab Spring from 2013 to 2018. She was also based in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2013. Maria Abi Habib, welcome to WORT. Thank you so much for having me. You know, you contributed to an August 18th Times article on an official government inquiry into the September 2014 disappearance of 43 Mexican students. That report found that it was, quote, a crime of the state involving every layer of government and in, in a local drug cartel. The article described, your article described the, re, the report as, quote, the most profound admission to date of government responsibility for one of the most notorious atrocities in Mexico's modern history. That at all times, the federal, state, and municipal authorities had knowledge of the students' movements, uh, the government Truth Commission said in its preliminary findings that the government's actions, omissions, and participation allowed for the disappearance and execution of the students, as well as the murder of six other people, 
Give our listeners some idea of what happened in 2014 and the cover-up of that occurred in its aftermath. So in 2014, you had these um, you had these teachers who left to go and pro- for a protest, actually, in uh, Mexico City. They commandeered a bus, which is, you know, not unusual. And they were actually going to um, protest or show their support for a massacre um, that had happened about 30 years before, uh, if I'm getting my math correct. Um, let's say 35, let's say 40 years before, sorry. <laughs> math is not my strong suit, which is why I went into journalism. Um, and I, and I hear what, you. Yeah. And what had happened was uh, they left and um, they were subsequently stopped by, uh, by, by police and massacred. We don't really have a lot of, of details beyond that, but it seems like there was collusion between um, local officials and, um, and, and violent criminal organizations, which unfortunately gets to the crux of kind of most of what's wrong um, in Mexico is, is that nexus between official corruption and, um, and you know, these, these non-state actors, cartels and criminal organizations. Um, so this has been an ongoing case. It basically led to uh, one of the, you know, it, it coincided with the turn against the Peña Nieto government, which was the previous administration, the previous president. Um, and now this president, who is known as AMLO, which are the, the acronyms for his name, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, he had campaigned in large part on this issue using it as kind of a symbol for everything that's wrong in Mexico, which is that state corruption, how it intersects with non-state actors, cartels, et cetera. And the fact that, you know, very little justice is to be found in a place like Mexico for the innocent. Um, And so he campaigned, said that he was going to bring justice. He was going to form a, you know, uh, uh, and eventually a truth commission was formed, um, which is uh, what led to the announcement about a week ago that, that indeed all levels of the government, all levels of the state, municipal, state level, federal, were in on the cover-up, were in on the crime, um, and that, uh, and they actually went after, went after people. They arrested a few dozen, actually, including the former attorney general, which is a really big place, which is a really big deal in any place. I mean, in the United States, where oftentimes officials are, are protected. <laughs> um, but especially in a place like Mexico, where officials are even more protected. So there we go. Go further with the, the oh, uh, let me back up a second. That is, you mentioned that, that these students were headed toward to a demonstration in uh, Mexico City commemorating the 1968 uh, uh, Tlatelolco uh, massacre. Um, that suggests to me that that there was kind of politics underlying not just the the, the trip of the students, but the fact that they were accosted uh, and massacred. I mean, at this point, we don't fully understand. There's there are very few details about this case, and the problem is is that um, you know going back to what I said you know a few minutes ago is that is that. The, one of the, the, the biggest problem in Mexico is this collusion of municipal, state, federal governments, um, typically, with these violent non-state actors. And the thing is, is that a lot has been covered up. There's just a lot that we will never figure out, you know. Um, 
you know, three, only three bodies of, you know, 40 plus students have been found uh, eight years later. And, and a lot of the intent, a lot of that kind of, you know, all investigations need to be moved on very quickly in order to both preserve whatever evidence is out there and has not yet been destroyed, to collect testimony from people as it's fresh um, and maybe isn't tainted either by intimidation from state actors, for instance, um, or by memory, right? Because sometimes people remember things a little bit differently to 20, you know, 15 years on. Um, and so unfortunately, people are very, very enthusiastic and happy that this federal government has decided to pursue this case. But there's not a lot of hope that we will really be able to piece together what exactly happened because there was so much under the previous government, there was so much um, tainting of evidence. And, um, and unfortunately, it's been six years. So, you know, or sorry, it's been eight years. So a lot of what should have been preserved has just not been preserved. So now we're going to have to rely on testimony. Talk about the role of the military a little bit further. That is, I, I understand uh, reading about, uh, well, reading your articles and other, and other material, that there was a military informant that had been embedded among the students. Yes, which would show that the, that the military both knew exactly where the students were, where they were going, and, um, and, and the fact that they, you know, were, were, were being killed um, and disappeared, or disappeared and killed. Um, and this has also been a big problem because the military here has had instances of high-level um, collusion with narco-traffickers. Um, and also, but also as well, you have this president, AMLO, as he's known, who has, um, who campaigned basically saying, what does the military do? Why are they such a black box? I'm going to send them back to their barracks. I'm going to put them in line. I'm going to show them that, you know, that the federal government are the ones in charge. Yet AMLO is, um, has empowered the military like nobody else before him in, in many respects, uh, in the sense that they are getting major government contracts um, to build infrastructure such as airport, a thousand miles of train in Southern Mexico. They're kind of the lead the lead force in, in, in charge of that project, which will create a huge 1,000 mile long railway in Southern Mexico. And then whatever profits are given or made from that train will actually go to the military. Um, and nobody quite understands why. It's either because AMLO is kind of a one man show and he hates it when people say, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that because you know of these restrictions and they lay out the restrictions. Um, or because um, he is reported to be a very paranoid individual. Um, what he likes, from what we understand from people who are close to AMLO, what he likes about the military is that the military is a yes-man force. So when he walks in for his cabinet meeting and says, I want to do this, and every bureaucrat says, that's a great idea, but we don't have the budget, or there are laws that we have to consider, or we have to do a survey to to figure out, you know, the pathway of this train, whether it will affect the environment. The military are the only people on the table who say, no problem, we don't care what the obstacles are, we're gonna get it done. And people are very worried that that line between military, between 
you know, state elected officials or federally elected officials and the military who have very little transparency is being blurred. And that's very scary in Latin America because one thing, one of Mexico's big successes is the fact that it has put the military in line for about a hundred years. We haven't seen the kind of involvement that the, in the mili- um, of the military in, in the democratic space that we've seen in other places like Argentina or Chile or Brazil. Um, the military knows its place and it stays in its place for the most part. Um, and it is, this is a democratic country that has seen very few military coups in the last hundred years. You're listening to Maria Abi Habib, who is the New York Times bureau chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. Uh, we'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour if you want to get in with a comment, a brief comment, a question for our guest today. Give us a call at 608 256 2001, extension 9. Maria, the your article t- speaks of a broader context of what it describes as cartel-fueled carnage and insidious state corruption that continued to rack the country. That the students were among more than 100,000 people who have gone missing or are considered disappeared across the country and that the murder rate in the, in the country is now topping 30,000 a year. Take that a little bit deeper. Talk about that, that, that violent social terrain. Um, well, unfortunately, it kind of goes back to what we were saying is that who are disappearing all of these people? Who is in charge of the 100,000 disappeared? Who is in charge, charge of the dozens of people who go missing, I don't know, every week or so? Um, and, you know, a lot of people kind of point immediately to the cartels and other criminal organizations. But it's not so clear cut as that. I mean, you have a lot of you have corruption at various levels of of the government. And you also have this collusion between these criminal organizations and um, municipal, federal, state level government officials. Um, So, you know, one of the problems with Mexico is that its justice system is is inadequate. Um, I'm in a town right now that is one of Mexico's most violent it has 900 police, um, but according to global recommended, you know, police per capita ratios, it should have 2,300. And even the 900 police that it has, you know, is are not, um, which is a third less than what they, you know, which is two thirds less than what they should have, according to those global recommendations. Um, there are major corruption and other personnel matters. Um, you know, they get paid like $300 a month, right? And they are facing cartels that are vastly, um, you know, more sophisticated, sophisticatedly armed than the police are. And a large part of that is because, um, actually because of lax gun control laws in the United States. So it is very easy for these criminal organizations to get guns that are legally purchased in the United States and smuggle them into Mexico. And everybody says like, oh, but the border, you know, why aren't the Mexicans patrolling the border adequately? But the problem is, is that the US also has a hard time patrolling its border, right? That shared border. So those arms are coming down. 
and they're being smuggled and they're being sold to these cartels and other criminal organizations. And, um, you know, yeah, there is corruption within the police, but there are also some police who really are trying to do the right thing or don't really have access to a great job market and they become police. Like, you know, we tend to kind of over generalize and say, oh, all the police in Mexico are corrupt, but there are some really good people who are trying their best. But, you know, trying your best with $300 a month in your pocket, which is, I mean, frankly, a lot of housekeepers get paid more than that in Mexico. You know, it's not easy. So um, I hope I answered your question. Sorry, I've been going off in a tangent. but No, no I, I think it's a, it was a very important tangent because we here in the States so often think about uh, <clears throat> that southern border as people coming north, as people coming toward us. And that flow of weapons uh, southward uh, is something that, that is rarely, if ever, mentioned. And, and so, uh, yes, it is very essential. Thank you. Yeah, and it helps fuel the ability for the cartels to smuggle the lax gun, gun laws in the United States, which then lead to the flows of arms to these criminal organizations in Mexico, then allows these criminal organizations to then outmaneuver state forces in Mexico and push migrants and drugs across the border into the United States. And these criminal organizations have gotten to the migrant smuggling business over the last decade or so because of an incredibly lucrative business. And we have to think about them as corporations. They don't do one thing anymore. It's not just drugs. They do everything. They do migrant smuggling, drugs, extortion, even avocados. Some of the avocados we're getting in the United States are actually, you know, picked and pushed and sold by the cartels because they will get into, they are, they are, they're diversifying like any smart business would do. They are diversifying into whatever space is possible, legal or illegal. I want to continue on with um, this, this issue of the police um, in an August 9th piece um you wrote about uh, police abuse and misconduct in Mexico City. Take that a little bit further, what, what it entails, uh, the, the kinds of things that are being, uh, that, that are carried on. Um, well, I mean, it's kind of everything. And it's funny that you mentioned that piece because actually a friend of mine who's an American businessman who lives in Mexico City said, it's funny that you you wrote that piece because that same day I actually ended up being extorted by the police. Um, so it's everything. It's, it's, you know, like for instance, in the case of my friend, he, had, he has a minivan, like a lot of good dads out there. Kids were in the back, wife in the front. Um, and they caught him on some little technicality that probably would have been, I don't know, $20 fine. Um, but the police said, no, we're going to take you to the ATM. We want X amount of money, which was, I don't know, maybe $100. And so he had the police cars with the sirens going around and escorting him to the nearest ATM with his kids in the back of the minivan. And he got out, gave them the money. Um, and, you know, of course, that's illegal because there should be a ticket that's been written, um, a set fine. No ticket was written. The fine was whatever they thought that they could ask him for. Um, and you know, he was either staring at, okay, just pay him a hundred dollars. This will all be over in five minutes. Although this is humiliating because my children are seeing these guys yell at me. Um, 
or I go to the police station. And that's like my entire day is waiting at the police station for them to give me a ticket. And, you know, I do this properly. So, you know, the police will get away with whatever they think they can. And a lot of Americans are moving on to Mexico City because it's quite safe. Yes, police extort you, but it's actually a safe place to live. I enjoy living here with my family. I walk alone at night from a dinner, you know, um, back to the house. And it's, it's a hip city now. It's cool. It's affordable. Um, it's culturally amazing. And so you also have a lot of Americans now feeding that, that corruption because what is $100 to somebody who is working for Google but, you know, working from home in Mexico, right? And so, um, and so we're also to blame. But then more sadly, Mexicans bear the largest brunt of it, which is things like planting of drugs. You know, $100 to somebody in Mexico could be easily a third of their monthly salary um, or half of their monthly salary. And um, it kind of just takes what, whatever form they think they can, they can get away with. But then you also have the mayor of Mexico, Claudia Sheinbaum, who is going to probably run for president um, and she may very well win. And one of her big things is we are going to clamp down on crime and we're going to make Mexico a, you know, Mexican government and all of its, you know, arms, a more transparent entity or entities. And so she very resolutely said all, all, you know, all corruption within the police forces is done. It's over. She said this a few years ago, but in fact, actually our investigation showed that it's not. And police also feel the pressure to arrest more people to show that they are producing results. But the thing is that those arrests are not always lawful. And we spoke to two people who, you know, were basically set up, lost their jobs, falsely accused of being, you know, one was falsely accused of being a drug trafficker and, um, you know, extorted. So it's quite a sad, sad state of affairs. I want to uh, change uh, course a little bit, but it all ties in. It all connects, of course. Uh, and that is that in recent months, from the early spring on, U- U.S. mainstream news networks have reported on the unparalleled drought across the uh, southwest. But we see little about what has been going on across the border in Mexico, despite the fact that the entire region on either side of the border has experienced uh, the, the driest two decades in 1,200 years. Uh, you contributed to an August 3rd article that described the effects uh, of the drought still scorching Monterey and elsewhere in Mexico. Give our listeners some sense uh, of the immensity of that situation. Um, well, it's, it's surprise, surprise, it's not a good situation. Um, Monterrey is the second largest city in Mexico. It is the powerhouse um, of the economic powerhouse of the North. Um, it's, uh, it's basically right across the border um, from Texas. Um, and, you know, we share resources. So Mexico and the United States both share their water resources across the border um, in these treaties. And Monterrey experienced very, very severe drought, very little rainfall. And one of its reservoirs, which contributes, you know, I don't know, I think about 30% of water to the entire city, um, which is about 5 million people, uh, 
basically totally dried up a few months ago. Um, and, you know, this is a reservoir that was, you know, not long ago advertised by the tourism board of Monterey as a great place to go water skiing and go to its, you know, uh, waterfront restaurants and boating. But, you know, on a visit there recently, uh, what we saw was, you know, it, you could walk across the reservoir for the first time since it was, it was, you know, created a few decades ago. Um, and now instead of the water skiing and the boating and all the other fun activities, uh, that used to take place there, what's taking place there is people with metal detectors walking around trying to find the coins that tourists used to throw in to the reservoir before they, as they made a wish. Um, and, and this is translated into just kind of complete pandemonium. Uh, you have entire, entire neighborhoods that haven't had water for over two months. Um, no running tap water. Uh, they are relying on government water tanks to bring water to their neighborhood. Everybody gets their buckets ready um, and walks their water home. So, you know, if you have, if you have, if you have like a hundred gallon bucket, I mean, that could be something like 200 pounds and you're trying to like take that home, um, which is, you know, pretty scary. Uh, and you have, you know, entire businesses that have to shut down because they just don't have enough water to sustain them because either let's say they're a hair salon and they need to wash people's hair. They might be a um, plant nursery, things like that. Um, and what you've seen is both arguments in the water lines because people are waiting for hours for the water trucks to come. You also have entire neighborhoods going out and locking neighbor, um, blocking highways uh, until the government agrees to bring more water to their neighborhood. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of the worst case scenario that we always feared uh, playing out, but it's playing out a lot sooner than scientists had hoped, you know. Um, all of these predictions were kind of, it seemed like they were way out in the future, but their climate change is happening much quicker than, than anybody thought, and it's now playing out right now. And of course, the this drought crisis affects different classes differently that uh, I, I noted in, in the article uh, that the water trucks, the tanker trucks go to the, some of the poorest neighborhoods uh, most affected uh, while uh, the wealthier parts of the city and the wealthier parts of Mexico uh, have resources. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, so they have resources, they have the ability to to oftentimes they actually have water running through their taps, but sometimes they don't. This is what's so interesting about the climate crisis. And actually I went to another country recently where it's the same thing. Um, eventually it's gonna kind of come for us all, right? It comes for the poor the quickest and the hardest, but then eventually it creeps up because there are only so many resources to go around. So even in the wealthier parts of Monterrey, you have water shortages where the water will only come for maybe five hours a day to your house. That's incredibly inconvenient. You know, that means like I've lived in places where that happens, where I've been in the wealthy neighborhood. Um, what that means is, you know, you wake up in the morning and if you forgot to fill up a bucket with water in the five hour time frame, for instance, that you had water the day before, it makes it hard to wash your face, to brush your teeth, uh, to boil water for your coffee, whatever it is. Um, it's a huge inconvenience. Um, 
but you know the poor yeah. share the biggest burden but we could eventually be right there like lining up for hours in our multi-million dollar mansions well i don't make that much money but you know for others maybe who are listening you know with buckets and their children having to you know ration have to deal with government rationed water supply you know water handouts for each household talk about the uh, there's an interlock theme that i see here one i mentioned the class nature of this uh growing crisis uh which also suggests that somewhere not far off on the horizon especially in places uh so impacted by it all uh the, the the crisis the potential of a of an explosive social crisis um talk about the the broader effects of the drought what it has meant so far what you've been witnessing uh certainly there's a, a increasing number of climate refugees those displaced from the countryside and the cities uh who are forced to migrate elsewhere, oftentimes now increasingly to the north. I'm so sorry, can you repeat that question? Yeah, I'm sorry. We got, um, yeah, I wanted you to talk about the the, the fact that, that these this multi-level crises, uh, social, political, environmental, is forcing people into movement, uh, physical oh. movement, northward, uh, and so on. It's visible all across the planet. Uh, I, I read recently, uh, you know, this, this week in preparation for the program, that uh, there's an increasing number of Mexicans, uh, excuse me, of Mexicans in Exodus. Mm-hmm. In um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's people flee for different reasons. Um, you have, you know, after the the very powerful hurricanes that happened in devastated parts of Central America in late 2021. You had two hurricanes back to back that were very, very powerful, which, by the way, is incredibly unusual. We are only seeing these events because of climate change, um, scientists believe. Um, so you had two very powerful hurricanes, Irma and I can't remember the last, the other one, um, but two devastating hurricanes back to back. I think there was a month between both of them. Um, and that led to a bunch of people that I met with actually talking about how you know their farm was devastated or maybe their their, the factory that they worked at was devastated and they were now going to the states to pursue um, employment Um, and then you also have uh, people fleeing violence and that's more of a mexican thing um, as well uh, at this point because parts of mexico have become incredibly violent um, even more violent than they were you know a year two three four years ago but a lot of them are economic refugees or climate refugees. I would say that probably the majority of them are um, um, as opposed to violence. And, you know, I think that having lived in a country that, that also produces, you know, I am half Lebanese and, and I can tell you with certainty that the majority of people don't really want to become a refugee and, or, you know, an, or an immigrant and have to start off new and live in a place that, you know, they don't speak the language or the customs are different or they might not be able to get their food. I mean, who really at the age of 30 or 40 wants to go to leave everything behind in their little town in Guatemala or Honduras or wherever they're from and start off completely new um, as like a landscaper in Maryland or a, um, uh, you know, a chicken feather 
plucker in you know some factory in Ohio. Nobody does, but they do out of necessity and necessity, and it's often economic necessity because they're climate refugees and they need to rebuild their home or they just can't find employment. Um, and that's also partly because of the immense levels of government corruption and ineptitude in these places. Um, and and I think it's only going to get worse. And actually, we have seen it get worse. We saw huge levels of of migrants, a spike up of migrants going to the states after these climate events that have devastated the region. Um, and unless you know we can work towards a more climate secure future, um, I think we will see much of the same. And a lot of these migrants don't want to stay in the States. They have these dreams of maybe going and working for five or 10 years, saving up a bunch of money and returning home. Oftentimes that just doesn't happen because home never really gets better. That's the problem. And also at the end of the day, as much as we pretend that this is not the case in the United States, there the reason why, part of the reason why, not sole reason your latte at starbucks is now costing i don't know 80 cents more or your lettuce that you're buying or your chicken and the supermarket is also costing more is because there is a huge labor shortage in the united states and the majority of americans do not want to be plucking feathers from chickens <laughs> in factories or um you know working as janitors in in hospitals or or restaurants um, and, you know, unless there is some sort of migration reform, for instance, opening up temporary visas where Mexicans or Guatemalans or whomever can come up to the States for picking season, for instance, to pick strawberries or whatever it is, or pluck chickens or whatever it is, come for three, four months or whatever that time frame is, and then they go back and it's a legal pathway where they are able to legally go and legally come back that shortage is only going to get worse and you're only going to pay more for your latte or your chicken breast at the supermarket or your meal out at a restaurant. Um, and the other problem is, is that if we don't have those legal pathways for migration, that puts more pocket, more money in the pocket of these violent narco traffickers and cartels in Mexico, because people have to rely on illegal pathways to get into the United States, which also, by the way, means that they have to take out crazy loans to pay those cartels. Um, I mean, one person I spoke to had paid $9,000 um, and she was from Honduras. And so that basically puts more money in the pocket of cartels. It makes it harder for people to go to the States and come back because now they have debts that they have to pay when they get back home, um, which could really be kind of erased if there were these temporary visas. And this is what all sorts of people will tell you whether they're Democrats and Republicans will tell you this privately. <laughs> they will not tell you this on the campaign trail. Um, well, some Republicans. And I think that, you know, if we don't want to be paying so much, so much more money for all of these life pleasures that we have, um, we have to be realistic about labor shortages in the United States and finding legal pathways for migrants to fill those labor shortages. And oftentimes those migrants, again, they really don't want to stay in the United States. They would just like the ability to come pluck your chickens or pick your strawberries for four months or whatever it is and go back home. You know, we have a caller that's been waiting with a question to get in. Uh, Mike, hello, you're on the air. Hello? 
This question was via online Facebook, Alan. <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> excuse me. I um, we'll, we'll go to some someone else. We have an online uh, question um, f- from uh, Miles. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, corruption seems. Ir- ir- he wrote that the corruption seems irrevocable, irrevocably entwined in in the Mexican polity. Will it really take a second revolution to really reform the system? Uh, maybe even ending a, a pre-monopoly that seems not to have changed things. Huh, okay. Um, all right. Uh, so that's an interesting and kind of difficult question. Um, so. Yes, unfortunately, corruption is is very embedded. Um, um, I mean, what is a revolution? This is the problem. Like I covered the Arab Spring. The problem is, is that revolutions are 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 easy to to execute, but the follow up is always is is difficult to achieve in the way that we want it to be achieved. Um, I think what people fail to remember um, is that Mexico actually has only really been a democracy for about 20 years. Um, you know, you did have elections over the last, you know, during the, the 20th century, but there was only really one party that was allowed to to form government and run those elections. So obviously there was not really, you know, a, a real democracy. Look, it took the United States decades for its democracy to form and try to become a perfect it's most perfect in its most perfect form and right now democracy is now being questioned in the united states and you have all of this you know questioning whether democracy is even important in the united states democracies will always be under threat because you know we are human beings who have different opinions and see things differently um you know mexico is a nascent democracy it's going to take some time, um, and I think slow, slow, slow and sure wins the race. Um, you know, and and I think that it just needs some some time to mature. It's only been twenty years, um, so you know the U.S. stumbled in all sorts of terrible ways at the beginning of its democracy, even you know fifty years into its democracy or a hundred years into its democracy. So I don't think a revolution is necessarily going to change much. Um, the railroad for Southern Mexico. Uh, so the railroad for Southern Mexico will basically run across five of Southern Mexico's states. Um, these tend to be the most impoverished states and least developed states in Mexico. The idea behind it is that it will connect these states because they're very disconnected um, and therefore it will boost the economy. But there are fears that this is kind of that AMLO, the president, is so hell bent on trying to create a railway that's about a thousand miles long and he's given it about four years because he's hell bent on, on cutting the ribbon and having his photo op. Uh, before he steps down in 2024. Um, and when you rush a project like that, it just never goes well. He's starting to, he's, he, projects like this, a thousand miles of railway are, is going to take at least 10 to 15 years by everybody, you know, every expert that we've spoken to who have worked on projects like this have said this to me. Um, and by rushing it and expediting it and trying to do it in four years instead of 15, um, you know, you're not going to have a great railway. And already we're starting to see that they are cutting some of the 
the better ideas on the railway, for instance, to create new commercial spaces and urban centers. They're cutting that because they just want to basically build the railway, say that we did it, it's done. Look what this president has delivered. He is a man of the people um, and here's his latest legacy project. Um, but by cutting all the things that were supposed to go into the railway and kind of integrate the economy and develop Southern Mexico, you know, you're doing a disservice to the project as it was first envisioned, and you're just doing a disservice to um, to the local population, according to everybody that we've spoken to, even people who are working on the railway, who quietly dissent. You're listening to Maria Abihabib, the New York Times Bureau Chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, currently stationed in Mexico. We're getting close to the end of the hour, and I wanted to broach a big topic that we can talk about a little bit, uh, and that is you've also written uh, about Haiti. On July 30th, you did a piece, uh, you co-authored a piece that reported on the real, the recent escalation of lawlessness uh, that has terrified the nation. Talk about that. The, um, the piece stated that the country's political and business elites have supported competing gangs to achieve their own objectives, whittling away any semblance of a functional state. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's, um, yes, this is, Haiti is something that, that is, um, it's just, it's tragedy after tragedy. And the biggest tragedy is every time we write a story about Haiti, it's, you know, trying to make the world actually stop and read it. Um, because it's one of those countries where people say, oh, well, you know, of course Haiti's messed up. But the problem is, is that we have to we can't just abandon people. They will always show up on our doorstep, right? Um, if we want to be unkind about it and think about it in the most kind of zero-sum game. Um, you know, so let's say if you care about just the general welfare of people, um, there's there's something that needs to be done. Something has to shake out. I don't know what it is. But then also if you're just like, ah, let Haiti be Haiti, who cares? Well, you know, those Haitians are going to show up in, in the United States seeking asylum. Um, uh, the issue is Haiti is like the, it's exactly what happens when there is a complete absence of government. Um, or it, which is that you've had several interventions, foreign interventions that have not worked. Then you've also had, Haitians being incredibly corrupt. So the problems of Haiti are not just foreign, they're also very local. Um, But, um, and what has happened now is that we have a a toxic soup of politicians and business people who feel they cannot turn to the local government and are are basically uh, paying off gangs in order to run their businesses or, you know, be able to live in their house and, and, and not be, you know, have that house overrun and, and, you know, the entire family kidnapped for ransom or worse. Um, and without the government getting its act together, um, we're going to continue to see this descent into chaos. Um, you know, when I first started working in Haiti about a year and a half ago, it was kind of the general rule of thumb was that about 40 to 50% of the nation of the capital was under gang control. Um, now it's about, 
it's about let's say it's hard to say what's under gang control but i would say that from everybody i've spoken with that about 90 percent of the capital either the gangs have a presence in and completely control the neighborhood or they are able to operate in those neighborhoods um and kidnap people or extort businesses and then go back to their neighborhood so at this point nobody's really safe you know maria uh you did a july 6th article in which you talked about the first week in july marking the uh a year since president uh Hovenel moise uh, was murdered talk about that i, I found the uh, the reportage uh well it had things in it that i was not aware of that there's actually two cases uh regarding uh the um, alleged assailants uh, one in Haiti, but one in the United States. Why one in the United States? Um, there are a lot of Haitian Americans who live in the United States, but then you also have this, this, um, so the investigation run by the United States is partly because they really don't have very much faith that there's going to be much justice served or a proper investigation done in Haiti. Um, but then you also have a lot of a, a, several tie-ins, strange tie-ins to either American citizens or American-based companies. Um, so you had several Haitian Americans who were were or thought to be involved in the assassination. But then you also have the involvement of a private security company, for instance, that is based in Florida, um, that also had some involvement in 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 the assassination. Not saying that they orchestrated the assassination, but maybe unknowingly were pawns. Um, and so, and so that's part of the reason why we have that, that investigation going on in the United States. You know, you stated that the, uh, quote, the, the separate United States government led probe has yielded no answers and instead raised suspicions of a link between the assassins and the U S intelligence agencies, uh, including the CIA. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. That that's a, a, a kind of certainly under the radar story for lots of folks. Yes. So you had several people who are suspected to be involved in the assassination, including the man who orchestrated the assassination, who um, who were former DEA agents. Um, and then you also have this very strange, uh, you know, one of the assassins or suspects was was extradited to florida um and in and in court the u.s government actually appealed to have a a, a, like an intelligence officer assigned to the case that would basically prevent a lot of that information like for instance this uh, suspect's testimony from becoming public um and you only you only see that happen when there when that person is is involved with an intelligence agency. So CIA, for instance, would be one of those. Maybe FBI, but you know FBI is domestic. So it kind of all indications are that this person was involved with the CIA. Now, look, I know that this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but we have also seen, um, and it has been proven that the CIA has been involved in some pretty bad things uh, across Latin America, including the Iran-Contra scandal. I mean, if you can sell arms to your uh, biggest enemy, quote unquote, Iran, um, 
as the CIA, then you can be kind of involved in anything. They've also been involved in in some of the nefarious drug cases that have, you know, uh, plagued Latin America and 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 ended up, you know, having dire consequences to Americans living in the United States. So I know it sounds conspiratorial, but it is very interesting that this person may be linked to the CIA and that the federal government has prevented a lot of a lot of this case from um, becoming public because it has some link and they didn't state what it was, but they just said that it has some link to U.S. intelligence agencies. Now, why the assassination of a president in Haiti, those actors that were involved in it or suspected to be involved in it, has, has some link that we don't fully understand to possibly the CIA? That's super interesting. What the hell is going on? You know, what is going on in the DEA that so many DEA former informants were involved in this assassination and then now with possibly the cia possibly being involved what is going on how is this assassination tied to american intelligence agencies it's a pretty interesting question i assume of course that the uh, the new york times is just not going to throw something out there in a conspiratorial sense unless uh, that's unless it's pretty well grounded in something or other so well, I mean, th- this was the federal government, right? This is court test. This is this is court. This is a court document. This is not me saying an anonymous source in D.C. told us blah blah blah. This was a court document that was made public because they had to make that public, saying the federal government asks that we that this that the information that comes out of this man's testimony is concealed from the public because he has some link two intelligence agencies that is a court document you can find it in on government websites not conspiracy you know we have but a few minutes left and i wanted to touch on something um that that is maria two years ago on august 4th 2020 one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history destroyed the port and damaged over half the city of beirut uh it was the result of a detonation of tons of ammonium nitrate stored in, in a port warehouse. You have deep roots and family ties to the city. You spent a good part of your early years there. I'm wondering if you might share some of your thoughts, your understandings regarding that devast- devastating event, but one moment in Lebanon's tragic modern history. Give us a, yeah. maybe maybe a reflection on how the, sh- the shock waves from that blast continue to reverberate i'd be happy to um okay well there are a lot of conspiracies that the israelis and the americans did it but um and i'm not a conspiratorial person and i will say that our investigation showed that it was pure government incompetence and this is what's so scary um is that you know the government essentially through criminal negligence killed its own people um, and destroyed, you know, about a third of Beirut. Um, and that is because uh, when religion and politics mix, it becomes very ugly. Um, and Lebanon has not had a functioning government because you have so many different factions, Christians, Muslims, others that are vying for control. Um, if you appoint a Christian bureaucrat, then you have to also appoint, you know, a Muslim bur- bureaucrat or a Shia Muslim or a Sunni Muslim. 
everybody has to feel like they've been treated equally. It's not based on merit. It's based on um, this power sharing arrangement that really makes no sense. Um, and and what that has done is essentially um, uh, created, you know, a government that is incredibly incompetent, is unable to manage its affairs, and left hundreds of tons of ammonium nitrate rotting in the Port of Beirut in a warehouse where there were also fireworks that were confiscated um, and other flammable material like paint. Um, and they were welding the this warehouse when, well, sparks flew and caught fire to ammonium nitrate and this giant blast happened. Two years later, we just, we just marked the second anniversary, as you said, uh, very little has been done. Very little of Beirut has been uh, uh, reconstructed. And you have a government that has never formally apologized to the victims, which is just crazy when you had the president of France coming days after to the streets of Beirut, sitting there crying with people. Okay, fine, it might have been politics, but at least he did it. You had government officials in Lebanon who were involved in this who did not utter a single condolence. Um, and two years later, that is still the case. Um, and, you know, considering how much Lebanese politicians have robbed from the country, our parliament is one of the world's wealthiest parliaments. Yes, some of that might have been legally gained, but let's be honest, probably a lot of it was illegally gained through contracts that were favored to people who are in power. Um, now, one dime, from what we can tell, has been down, has been even donated to things like the Red Cross from these politicians. So um, people are fed up, people are outraged, and unfortunately very little change for the Middle East's only, you know, majority Christian nation. Um, well, maybe not majority, but it has a huge Christian presence. Um, and yeah, there we are. Sorry, I'm going on a rant. Yeah. No, no, it's quite good. But unfortunately, we're right down to the uh, wire here with the program. So I do want to uh, thank you, uh, Maria Abihabib, uh, Bureau Chief of New York Times Bureau Chief stationed in Mexico City. I uh, want to thank Chuck for engineering today, uh, Shali for helping out. Uh, Rochelle for producing. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be talking with you next week. Thank you. Six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision.